when we are doing the will of our true self, we are inevitably doing the will of the universe. In magic, these are seen as indistinguishable. That every human soul is in fact one human soul. It is the soul of the universe itself. And as long as you are doing the will of the universe, then it is impossible to do anything wrong. Slither hither, weirdos and witches. My name is Keats Ross, and this is Prag Magic. You see, the only consistency I've found thus far in this pragmatic quote-unquote mystery school or, uh, you know, my personal quote-unquote audio grimoire, the only tether that is so glaringly obvious within each guest and within me personally is the drive to cultivate or create a personal folklore that helps. Our unique mythologies are our means of communicating how we see the world creator or not and no matter our disparate artistic paths we all share the want to accentuate this shared reality with our personal narratives it's more so than just the what does this all mean quandary it's more pragmatically driven it's where do you need me and what can i do to help because we care to utilize these personal narratives and not just understand them and with that Derek Hunter is something of an anomaly. He not only fervently creates works of fiction and sound art, but he also applies his unique folklore in exceedingly humanitarian ways. Something seldom found within this wholly self-centered realm of metaphysical arts. He's managed to turn his own redemption arc, a destructive past that we both share, and evolve it into a philosophy, a methodology, that anchors the whims and wonders of the creative mind in a beautifully simple resolve. Love, chaos. He's one of the few that has the day-to-day application of metaphysical means transposed from his own creative work to his miracle work of counseling ex-addicts and inmates, and I couldn't have been more excited to hear about how his once-troubled past transformed him into a light as a father and for society's disenchanted and destitute. And how, well, it all informed his artistic folklore of love chaos along the way. So without further ado, here's my brilliant conversation with my new friend, Derek Hunter. You know, I've constantly been like a... a, a a, a person who's sort of like searching for um, something to get into, like something that I, I find that is supposed to be gives my life um, a sense of purpose. Uh, and I'm, I, I think that um, you know whether it was when I was a, a peace activist for California Peace Action years ago, um, when Bush was president, or before that, there was I did a. a a period of about two years of my life where I was really like hardcore, um, kind of like new age Christian. Uh, 
And, um, so, uh, and then there was a time where I was really into Satanism and, uh, then I, I, I got, I was another time where I was really into, uh, the, uh, the life and philosophy and the films of, uh, John Cassavetes. Cool. Yeah. And, uh, you know, um, Cassavetes was not only one of my favorite filmmakers in my twenties when I, when I was actually a filmmaker back then. Um, and it was something about his way of seeing life. That was a huge influence on me too. And, um, a lot of it had to do with, you know, relationships between human beings, whether it be between, uh, friends or between, uh, a man and a woman who are in love or struggling to, to love each other. And, um, I had always kind of known that in, uh, that love was was a pretty messy thing, uh, you know, growing up as a kid um, without really knowing if my biological father was like my true father figure or my stepfather who I grew up with was my father figure. And uh, just sort of being caught between that and also my mother and uh, just other things happening in my life, you know, and, and I could see that my my life was no real different than other people's lives and that that love seemed to exist, but it wasn't like a, um, it wasn't an easy thing to, to experience. And so, uh, it kind of always struck me that, that there was an element of chaos in love itself. And, um, and, and, and that really struck me, especially so when I got into the films of John Cassavetes and, uh, you know, it was just really, affected by it and, and sort of lived my life in that way too. I was not just a, a fan as a, of his films, but also felt like it was important to introduce it into my own living my life and my own relationships with other people. So even at that time, I hadn't officially given it a name in terms of it being called Love Chaos as I do now. Even back then, it was something that I basically the, the principles were very similar. Uh, and, uh, uh, and, I, and at that time, too, I was also embraced agnosticism, uh, which I was very heavily influenced by my dad. And uh, this was before ever, you know, getting into Robert Anton Wilson's will, uh, work, which, of course, as right. you know, he, he was a major agnostic. Um, yeah. So agnosticism was a big, big deal for me in my 20s as well. And so that really helped to shape, you know, how I saw things. And uh but in terms of answering your question, so like, how did that come into play? Well, yeah, it, well, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was just going to pick up on something, a thread there that uh, when you mentioned Cassavetes, how he lived his life, his own personal folklore and methodology, you mean for like the mundane, not just for the art, but just for beingness? Oh, well, I mean, it's, I think that if you look at, if you if you if you get into Cassavetes, realize that yeah, um, woman under the influence is one of my favorites. It, oh, it's great! Yeah, and then there's husbands, mm-hmm. and there's opening nights. Uh, there's uh, uh, faces, which was is fantastic, and that really is what the film that kind of launched him. Um, but is that and there's love streams too, which is one of my favorites. And right. and you look at any documentaries that are about his life, and there really is no difference between his life and his films and that appealed to me you know i've always been interested in in artists lives as well as their art you know and and i always whenever i was you know i was into a a 
James Joyce, well, I still am into James Joyce, and I loved reading about his life, or I was into Arthur Rimbaud, I was really into reading about Arthur Rimbaud's life, or, and it's, you know, and so on. It's just something that, to me, the artist's life and their work itself are, um, are really important in, 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 in their connection to each other. I agree. And, uh, I absolutely agree. Yeah, because I've always, like, I've gotten some flack from friends that, you know, uh, they say that I'm too into the story, not just the art. You know, I can't separate the artistry from the, from the art. But to me, it, the whole thing is the art. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's something that I think, you know, if you're into, into art, I think it's important to apply it to your life. It's, it's not just something to separate from your life. It's something that, you know, whatever vision or, or message that the artist is trying to communicate, that it's something that you can actually apply it to your life. It's not just something to enjoy for a couple hours and then you forget about it. You're like a perennial seeker. You're kind of courting and testing different, I don't know, like spiritualities and and esotericism and yeah just kind of trying to find the one that really resonated or sung to you yeah so um so what happened was um by my mid-30s you know i'm a father um my son was born in 2005 uh, when i was just about to turn 27 and oh thank you <laughs> and it was a really it was a really intense year it's probably the most intense year of my life because I saw, witnessed, um, you know, the birth of my son, the most beautiful moment of my life. But it, but bookending those that experience was watching the death of my grandmother in, in her hospital bed uh, three months before, and then three months after my my son's birth, um, my the death of my father, which was uh, very unexpected, and uh, I was very close to my dad. Um, I didn't, I didn't grow up with him, but, uh, for those last nine years of his life, we became best friends and, um, he was just always there for me and always engaged in my life and many ways showed what an authentic relationship is really meant to be. And so after just suddenly becoming a father myself, I, I lose my own father and, uh, that was very, um, dramatic and, um, you know, I, I struggled I was always there in love and, and being a part of my son's life, but eventually I got into heavy substance abuse, and um, that was uh, it was a whole uh, adventure where I, I I definitely could have died a number of times, and um, uh, it was getting worse and worse towards the end. And uh, by my mid thirties. I realized that as much of a, of a seeker of the truth and an experiencer of life and uh, an artist and all this other jazz, you know, that I, I thought I was, um, I was very self-destructive. And uh, it dawned on me that there was still a lot that I had to learn about myself. And uh, so that's when I realized I had to make a major change in, in my actions and my behaviors and my, my thinking as well, too. And um, I uh, would continue to be individualistic and did not want to do the 12 steps. I didn't want to go to rehab. I didn't want to go to treatment. But, you know, at the after the insistence of my doctor to go to therapy, at least uh, I did do that and um, realized that I had to find a form of work because being a 
a sort of bohemian artist wasn't going to be paying the bills. And so I had to find a line of work because I had to pay for not only my own bills, but my son's as well. So I had to find a line of work that I could find some satisfaction and some meaning in. And that's how I got into um, uh, becoming a counselor, helping not just uh, uh, inmates coming out of prison, but also people struggling with addiction to substances and to to other things. Do you think it was the perennial seeker not being able to kind of discern or find the methodology that sung to you um, kind of manifested in destructive ways? Um, hmm, that's a good question. Um, I think that uh, that played a part. I don't know, like... I think that I think what ultimately happened, I think, was was that um, out of that kind of like stubbornness on my part or unwillingness to just sort of, I guess, um, do except just just do what was sort of was told told to me and and like okay, Derek, you know, you got to do the twelve steps or you've got to you know be born again or, or whatever it may be, you know, like I. Um, I think that's what that's how love chaos came to be was just that, you know, out of that point in my life, which was a real dead end um, and, and, and just feeling like something had to happen, something had to change. And because of my resistance to other ideologies, um, I just felt that some, I, I, it was something that I had to be created for my own sanity and my own well-being uh primarily number one but also it felt like it was the right thing to do just to offer to others that might be struggling in their own lives yeah you know i I feel akin to that myself with my own history and it comes up a lot the absence of service or doing something for the welfare of things outside of yourself i didn't express that it expressed itself in destructive ways you know right right obviously you found a therapy in and of itself and helping these prisoners these inmates yeah that came that came um years later oh, like okay. i yeah i i, I uh, worked at some uh, predominantly you know i went when i went back to school it was for for drug and alcohol counseling uh-huh and um then i my first few jobs were working at uh, drug and alcohol treatment centers and um you know, I, I worked at a, a, a outpatient clinic in um, Skid Row here in L.A. for about a year and a half. And then after that, I worked at a, a really posh, upscale Malibu rehab. Mm-hmm. And um, so, you know, I saw sort of like the, the the low end of it and then the high end of it of treatment. Right. And then um, and then and then the Amity Foundation, who I work for now for the last uh, year and a half, um, they. Uh, had an opening and I never worked in reentry before. And I, and I never spent any time in prison before either. You know, I spent three nights in jail right. uh, for, for something, but I never went to prison, even though my father did. My father spent three years in prison in the early seventies and went through some pretty hor- horrific experiences. And, uh, but my, myself, I never did. So, um, you know, I feel like, like what you say, like, you know, when it comes to being of service to other people, that really does help um, tremendously in terms of one's own well-being. And that's what I found like when I first started uh, different internships and, and, and that I was started working at different facilities. I, I, I saw when I was there in person with 
these people who were struggling with their lives, I, I felt connected to them and part of their process and part of their journey and getting their lives, you know, back together or improving it. And, uh, it just felt, it felt good. It felt like I was being a part of something important and, if, and it felt like it was something meaningful. Um, it and totally I, is. Yeah. yeah, it really is. It, it, and, and so it's like something that I realized that was what I had to do. The thing that fascinates me that I seldom see is that confluence of esotericism or occult methodologies, magical practice, you know, that sort of stuff within a service realm or with the idea to help things outside of your own, you know. World. Definitely. So it's, it's really cool to see the philosophy of love chaos and to see kind of where it generated and kind of morphed into what I'm assuming is your like tether your uh, cross platform absolutes that you're finding in different philosophies. Yeah, definitely. I, I feel like that, that one of the things that um, I, uh, one of the reasons why I created love chaos and, and why I, I'm going to be continuing to work with it is that I feel like there was a, a need just, it was a need for myself, but also I feel like there's a, um, a need there as well um in regards of of you know um i guess you could say like the occult world um marrying itself with the psychological world or the helping right. world you know in in that um people could be you know helping each other and with that intent to help each other um as well as kind of peering behind the veil of the mysteries of the universe and, and transcendence, which is in all its various forms of whether a person's, you know, practicing the right hand path or the left hand path. Right. It's very like, uh, uh, or chaos magic or the Wicca or whatever it is, you know? Um, but, um, and also too, just, um, in the sense that, you know, love chaos, along with that, that, that sense of helping others is, is a very inclusive, um, philosophy and way of life too, so that it's open to people of all backgrounds, you know, and, and, um, like my last, uh, girlfriend, uh, she was a Christian and she got into practicing love chaos in her own life. And, uh, I feel that, you know, a person, I, I just, for me, you know, I've, I've, I've come into contact with, with people of all kinds of different backgrounds and I've had some great friends who are atheists mm -hmm. and, you know, and, and, and people who don't associate with spirituality at all. And, um, and I'm fine with that personally, you know, like I, I, I don't, I don't, I, I have my own kind of beliefs and, right. and, and it's, it's mine and, and it's cool. And it's, but I, I don't want those to be the same for everybody in love chaos. And it was something I had to think about and I wanted it to be open to people of all kinds of different backgrounds because, uh, you know, humanity has always been really easy to, or quick to kind of like, uh, find their own group to associate with and to belong to tribal and it's been very tribal. Yeah. And, um, uh, and I just, I, I'd rather, I just, I, you, you see that even in, in, in the 12 step, 12 step fellowship as well, too. You see 
people who identify as alcoholics but don't want to associate with with people who use harder drugs. Oh yeah. Or yeah. you know, you have people who are struggling with codependency who don't want to be around addicts. And then you have people who are in depression anonymous who don't want to associate with people who have issues with substances and and just the list goes on and on. And I just felt like, you know, Love Chaos, it would be important for it to be um, kind of like open to people of a lot of different backgrounds, you know. And yeah. um, and so that's that, that's, you know, a, a big part of what Love Chaos is about. Yeah, it seems like a uh, comparative philosophy where it's pragmatic, like it's not it's not discerning as to cultural or uh, spiritual backgrounds at all. It seems like a comparative thing that each religion hits at in their own way. Positive philosophies hit in one way or another, but it's laid out kind of simple, direct. Yeah, it's definitely, it, it, it definitely is meant to be pretty direct and, and pretty clear. Um, you know, uh, a lot of my writing in, in fiction is done in a very um, surreal style. Yeah, and has, we'll talk and, about that too. I got that. Yeah, so it was something that I, I wanted to love chaos to be um, pretty simple and direct in that sense, yeah. Well, let me read a little something of what you wrote about love chaos, because I'd like to get into some of the nitty gritty, just uh, maybe some of the aspects that we could showcase and give an actual example of someone applying it in their life. Definitely. Uh, so you had written... All that is required is that you have love chaos as a guiding principle in your life. This means seeing that the universe, existence as we know it, or do not know it, is essentially chaotic in nature, unpredictable, and to focus on love within a chaotic framework. What resonates about that is that there's a surrender in it, but there's no retreat, if, if that makes sense. Right. We're surrendering to the forces, the unseen forces that ripple and tied through all of us but here's how we react or here's how to navigate that is that close yeah that's pretty close i'd say that you know chaos is um it's something that really is really it's, it would be something that as soon as we're able to define it then it slips underneath our, our, our out through our fingers and <laughs> it becomes something else you know and, and it's like when we are able to say, well, you know, life is this, and then suddenly it changes and because becomes something different. That to me is 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 chaos, and you know, um, it's something that where you, it, it's unpredictable in the sense of that, you know, it's it's it can be predictable at times, and it can be something you can you can you can control something. You can have um, an impact on certain things, and you you can also not too. Sometimes things are out of your control, and some things. So there is the element of acceptance for sure, but I wouldn't say that it's entirely about acceptance either. You know, um, and like what you're saying, it's it's not something where it's not a retreat at all. Um, it's something that we're engaged in as well, um, and so I think it's it's important where. I guess we could say sort of like what, what the, the difference um, that I find with a lot of other uh, ideologies mm -hmm. is that um, there isn't a, a point of view on reality um, that you can kind of uh, come to again and again. 
Um, so that what I mean by that is that, you know, and, and there's a lot of, uh, of value, I think, in, say, for example, Buddhism or Christianity um, or Islam or Judaism or Hinduism or pagan beliefs. But, um, you know, when you go back to these these belief systems, they have a certain structure to them, uh, a certain understanding about the universe. Um, and right. They define a lot. There's a lot of definition involved, yeah. right? You know, and, and even when you come to what you know, many feel is to be a very, uh, uh, I should say, non-dogmatic belief system. Buddhism. If you actually look at the practices and the beliefs of Buddhism, it, there are certainly um, dogmas, and um, there's certain things that one has to go by, and um, you know, and, and then there's different schools, of course, too. There's a, a wide variety of schools, not just in Buddhism, but in Christianity as well. And so, uh, it's not to say there's not variances in, in gray area in all these different religions. But um, I just, I think maybe as a, I just wanted to have something where, as an underlying principle from the get go, um, you just sort of had that perspective, um, you know, as you go through your daily living. And as you go through your day-to-day experiences and as you go and, and come across important decisions that you have to make as well. Very cool. Yeah, it reminds me of another quote that you had written. It says, the symbol of the eye is very important in the philosophy of love chaos. Perception is key. So it sounds to me like it's very subjective because it, it has to be in a way. Yeah, I mean, it, I think a lot of it is dependent on circumstances, you right. know, uh, a lot of a lot of the things that we do are dependent on on what we find ourselves in from moment to moment, and um, what could be true from for us in one moment might not be true for us in the following year. Um, so I would say that in that sense, it's definitely. Uh, I guess if you want to call it subjective, then then that would be that would be true in that sense. Sure. Yeah, I mean, I guess in the sense that it's giving power to the perception of the the reader, or the yeah, or is reminding the reader that not to define or be so rigid about. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it, it definitely is about you know finding, um, I should say, um, being able to see you see something, and it's sort of like. Um, it, you know, when Crowley would talk about a lot about where he'd say, like, once you come to like an understanding about something, make sure to um, to find the opposite to be true as well. Right. Yeah. And, okay. and, I, and I feel like there's a lot of there's, I, I, I know that people could probably take that kind of way of thinking and living to an extreme. Um, <laughs> yeah. And. Uh, and so, so like that person doesn't really have any kind of um, moral center or principles that, to go from day to day. So they're just constantly changing their their way of thinking about things. And that's why I I, I really wanted to have the, the 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 focus be on love. Is that you have all this chaos in this world that we live in, but while while we're you know things are constantly changing, like the, the one thing that you could say that would center us would be love. Right. I mean, it's simple, it's powerful, it's universal. It makes total sense that those would be both the opposing and the monad at the same time, love and chaos. 
Yeah, or they and they don't necessarily have to be in opposition either, too. Right. Together, they are the absolute, in a way. Sure, right, right, right. So Love Chaos is presented in book form. You have a book. Yeah. It's also done as dialogues between whoever is interested and you. Yes. Well, it also, too, if people would like to, to they could do it um, amongst themselves as well. And so that, you know, it, um, the, the sort of, I guess you could say that the formal aspect of it or the real aspect of it would be uh, just between two people or more who have love chaos as a guiding principle in their life. So it's basically when, when uh, one or more people have that and have decided to have that as their guiding principle and then the dialogues that they have uh, between themselves uh, would that would be sort of the official uh, love chaos dialogues and just like see where people can go with that. But um, right. you know, but yeah, that doesn't mean that a person can't talk to me with and 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 say like, well, I, I haven't decided if I want to have love chaos as a guiding principle. So it certainly you know, and many and many people have communicated to me so it's just that if at some point if people wanted to really truly seriously pursue it they would have to come to that you know right point point of view eventually at some point well i enjoy it because it harkens back to what you were saying when you kind of corrected your path and realized that life is is about interpersonal relationships in a way and why the cornerstone of applying this would be the conversational aspect between two people investigating it right exactly yeah so i uh found a review of the book which i thought was great really really lays it out yeah was it it's on uh goodreads right on goodreads it's a great great review and i wanted to read it for Uh, the audience so because it, it really describes uh what the love chaos book is like and it says quote each chapter is simply one page Facing each chapter's page is a color, black, red, or white. There is a significance of why one color is facing each specific chapter slash page, but not to be explained, at least not within this book. Sure. What I wanted to go from that is talking about the colors. Now, you also go on to say that what is important for the readers to know about the colors is that the immediate subconscious effect the color has on the reader once seen is the most important part. Colors are specifically placed in a way to uh, mirror the words within the book. Am I correct? Right, right. Each So each page is a chapter, and it'll have a, a subject matter on it. So one is like, you know, sex, and another one is marriage. Another one is politics. Another one is, you know, aliens. Another one is, um, you know, uh you know, monogamy. Another one is, is the different topics from, you know, that it kind of deals with in a very kind of brief way, just one page. Uh-huh. And, and an opposite of that is a, is a color. So is there some psychological sure. background in that? Like, are you, are you well, trying to elicit certain kind of rhythms for each word from color? Well, so like, so the colors, um, black, white, and red are very important to me. They're the colors of alchemy. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the old traditional, you know, um, uh, uh, I guess, uh, concepts behind each color. So black is, you know, is basically um, is death, decay, 
and then uh, white is the next stage. So the first stage would be black, and then this and the as putrefaction is is the word they use, mm-hmm. and then the white is purification. So it's it's the next process in the alchemical process, and then uh, so it goes through a purifi- purifying process, and then reaches finally red, and red is the color of of perfection, and so. Um, you know, it, colors have 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 kind of have appealed to me for a while now in my works of fiction as well. Uh, my my most recent book is called Black, right? And it it symbolizes that first stage of the alchemical process, and so it's the first in a trilogy. The second book is will be called White, and the third book will be called Red. Uh, and then also, I uh, have wrote a book called Black Light, White Dark, and um, uh, there, uh, I, I, along with Black Light and White Dark, and also my current trilogy of, of, in this first book of, in the trilogy Black, I, I switch the traditional uh, notions of the color. Like black is evil, white is good, right? Right. And and so, like in those short stories in Black Light, White Dark, that's divided in in you know in nine and nine, eighteen short stories. The nine short stories of Black Light, uh, five female narrators and four male narrators are on the outside appearances uh, would be considered to be outcasts or people not um, as seen as the typical notions of what it means to be a good person. Mm-hmm. Uh, but underlying it in terms of um, their integrity and in terms of where they are in their heart. Um, they have an innocence and a, a character, a strength of character that, um, that the characters in the other portion in the white dark, uh, stories, which are more satirical, uh, they are essentially, um, more nobler in character than those other characters. So I'm switching the, making the color black actually more positive and the color white more negative. Yeah, I could see that. And so it's just playing with with colors in the sense that, you know, it, it, it falls into the philosophy of love chaos because of people's, you know, perceptions of things and trying to, you know, and this goes with my, my, my fiction writing as well, is alter people's perceptions. Yeah. Yeah. You specifically had mentioned uh, not to utilize what the common connotations of colors right and it's cool because now i see that you're programming the reader to relate ideas with colors differently than they would already have yeah i think the underlying it is to is trying i mean there's so many different ways that people throughout history have tried to make people more conscious you know And, and it's something that you know gurdjieff i'm not like a huge fan of gurdjieff but i really i do like some some of what he's about. I know basically underlying what Gurdjieff was about was just trying to make people more aware and more awake. Mm-hmm. And, 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 I, and it's something that I think if you do look at a lot of the older uh, belief systems, whether it be Buddha or, or, or Jesus or whoever, or even someone like Anton LaVey, it's just like, you know, whoever, or Aleister Crowley, it's just like, I, how, whatever their belief systems are and however good or bad they are, I think ultimately it's an attempt by them to make people more conscious. And I think, you know, if 
sometimes we need to try new things and, and do things in different ways to make people um, kind of like uh, uh, snap out of their slumber. Yeah. In order for them to be more conscious human beings. I like it in a sense that it's not contrarian so much as that it is cunning ideas to utilize big uh, imagery with just simple yeah. words or phrases. Right, right. right. How did that come to you? Uh, well, it, it, no, I, I didn't derive it for uh, from any you know particular um, psychological school that maybe did uh, research or studies on color and the effects on people. Like I didn't, I didn't do that. Uh, I just did it more in terms of just really trying to find, use color as a tool, uh, as a way, because again, as you say, it is so, I, you know, it, it's so, um, dramatic in terms of, especially those colors, black, white, and red, um, of just getting people to think in a different way. Yeah. I love it. That's, that's such a good idea. I thought, too, the other part of this review uh, that sums it up, I thought was a good way to leave Love Chaos for the listener to investigate. They finished the review with, It offers a modern approach to a code for living, which emanates from the author, a form of direct and very concise self-help guide, which suggests a revised, more fitting, and up-to-date ethos for our advanced times. I was like, yeah, that's... <laughs> it's very, very <laughs> succinct, but kind of brilliant. And I think with that, whoever's listening to this now, it's it's the appropriate amount of amorphous, an appropriate amount of mystery still involved that will always kind of elicit whoever's listening or whoever stumbles into this to investigate more. And I think that's kind of the point at times. Am I correct? Yeah, I, I definitely think that I, I would say adding to I, I do really appreciate them that review they wrote. And I, I, I and I like that part of it too. And I would say though that um, and it's not really made clear in that first book either. It's it's going to be made clear in this next book on Love Chaos, which I'm currently writing right now, and uh, which I, I will be uh, publishing next year. And um, so in that book, I will be going into more details about Love Chaos uh, into the different, there's like basically three different aspects to Love Chaos. There's the Love Chaos as a guiding principle in one's life. There's Love Chaos psychology and there's Love Chaos magic. But one of the things that I discuss in this next book is how Love Chaos is really inclusive. And so I don't want it to be like this idea that love chaos is somehow going to replace other people's belief systems. Right. Yeah. And I don't want to presume that it would ever get to that level of, you know, dominating other, other religions or, or other belief systems. And I feel like that it's, it's very possible for people to be practicing multiple things at once. And in fact, that's kind of like the, underlying philosophy of love chaos is that it is not meant to be dogmatic it's quite the opposite and so that means that it it's however much i may personally um not agree with certain details and other belief systems it doesn't mean that i don't see value in them right and, and, and it doesn't mean that i don't see that there's obviously um real true value to other people and how it means something to them you know, and um, and I and I and I think this comes with working with with other people, whether it be guys coming from prison or people struggling with substance abuse. 
and I, and I see people and their faith and their beliefs help them so much. And when I see that, it's just like, how can I just even presume to just tell them in that moment and they're in the, in the depths of their struggling and sorrow in their life. And they just tell them, well, you know what? You're wrong. You know, like, you know, it's like Jesus never existed and, uh, and Christianity is bullshit and, or, or, you know, or Islam is a bunch of crap or whatever, you know, it's like, to me, um, because I've, I've experienced those so many moments where when these people have nothing left, but their beliefs, it's like, I, I can't like take that away from them as a counselor. And I, and I just felt like, why, why would I want to do that? with love chaos too, you know? Totally. Yeah. What's what resonates with me, just the way the book is laid out and that mention of code for living, it seems very much like love chaos is the source code of which spirituality based or philosophical things are out of. It seems kind of like the, uh, default setting in a way. Uh, Yeah. I mean, well, that's one of the things I mentioned in in my next book on love chaos is I, I, I personally kind of feel that people kind of already practice love chaos. Like, you know, I feel like we really don't know what's going on in the universe and we really don't oftentimes know what we're doing. And, you know, I feel like people um, do things out of uncertainty. We really don't know what's going to happen. We have an idea, we have like some sense, but then a lot of times our experiences contradict our expectations. And um, I I really feel that people basically really are trying to live a life of love, whether they be as crazy as it sounds as a a right wing Trump supporter or someone who, who lives a vegan lifestyle, who is, you know, uh, uh, very peace loving and, 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 and and true to their their principles you know i, I it doesn't mean i agree with the, the trump supporters but it means that like i think they feel i mean certainly hitler thought he was doing the right thing and he was a vegetarian he, and he likes children who were white anyway and <laughs> i think it, you know in, in his eyes he felt no one he thinks was, they're the villain yeah exactly you know like he could be decimating an entire race and yet somehow feel that it was he was doing it out of love and, uh, and, and, and that's one of the key things that's difficult, I think, in life is that, and this is the, one of the challenges, and, it, it, and I, I go into it in my next book, is that, you know, um, you know, love chaos can be very different for different people. And, um, and it's just hard to know when one is doing something out of love and when someone is doing something out of, out of hatred. Now, do you find there's going to be a caveat? with examples like you just gave but love seems to be too emotion based do you think that it would you know there needs to be maybe some logical moral like grounding or a uh i know you were talking about not defining things but maybe is yeah. there um a, a kind of loose interpretation of both love and chaos that you're meaning well i think i i you know i think at, at the end of the day, I kind of have to leave it as 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 something where, it, at least just for the beginning uh, of where someone's at in their life, that it, it can just simply be, 
you know, having love chaos as a, as a guiding principle in your life. And that can be all kinds of different things. But, um, you know, I think that there's always a danger in people adapting a, a belief system and then using it for destructive ends. Right. And I think, you know, I think, I think you can look at Christianity as a perfect example of that. You know, um, yeah. there's been the history of Christianity has been, there's been thousands of years of bloodshed. Um, does that, does that mean that there's something inherently wrong with Christianity? Well, right. I think that's, that's open to debate, but, um, I think that a person, you could, person can construct a perfectly designed belief system and with all of the, uh, sort of like arguments that are in place that would sort of make sure or ensure that there won't be anyone who would use it to destructive ends and someone will still find a, a way to use it for destructive ends. Sure. You know, and, and I think shouldn't deter you from not defining it as you think you shouldn't. Well, that's why what, what, what I do is that is that um, for those what I, I highly encourage people to do is to to pursue love chaos and uh, these two other realms, which is in using uh, psychological tools and also and through the practice of magic as well, because uh, I really feel, um, you know, that the psychological aspect, the psychological tools of self-awareness, uh, uh, becoming more aware of oneself and what's going on with oneself. Uh, and then also not just on an individual sense, but uh, in working with others and in, in group dynamics um, is really a key for making sure people live uh, healthy lives and in constructive and productive lives instead of destructive ones. Um, and, and I, I really feel like that would be good for people to do before they pursue magic, because as someone who, um, has practiced magic when I was really unhealthy psychologically and really unstable emotionally, I was a really ugly person at times. And I, yet I was a practitioner of magic and, um, and I, and I really feel like, you know, it would be important if someone wanted to say that they practice magic, that uh, love chaos magic, that they were um, working on themselves psychologically at the same time too. Um, because, you know, as you probably know, when you start to work in the occult world, a lot of different doors open up to you um, that are very, can be very uh, frightening uh, to you and to others. So if someone's not grounded psychologically, um, they can go in some really um, nasty places. Yeah, that was definitely my 20s. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the application or the practice of, of magic specifically just amplifies like every part of you. Right. And so if you're being guided by selfish, dark forces, it's <laughs> you're going to start emanating that in your life. Or I should say, like, with selfish intention, you know? Right, right. Speaking of the occult, what types of magic are you employing yourself and are going to be eschewing with Love Chaos Magic? Yeah, well, so the thing with, with Love Chaos Magic is that, you know, what has... You know, I've tried different things and I would say that, you know, probably the thing, the practice that I have really found the most satisfying, um, enriching, 
and um, effective, I guess. I don't want to go with the word effective too much, as much as I love chaos magic. Yeah. But, you know, I really do. And I really I, I feel like it has, has been so huge in terms of the occult um, evolving and yeah. progressing in a really great direction. I, I, I would stay, I would say that I would, 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 would kind of stay away from, um, putting too much emphasis on results magic yeah. on, on, on what, you know, uh, using magic to get certain goals, um, yeah, which is not quantifiable results. Yeah. Not, which is not to say that like, that's not important because I feel like that is, but like for me, I would say that the most effective thing as well as the most personally rewarding thing and enriching thing has been uh, a form of, of different things that I've gotten from Crowley, from Austin Osmond Spare, from Chaos Magic, and from others, which mm -hmm. is utilizing uh, essentially invocation uh, sex magic and using uh, the orgasm as a means to um, opening up um, the subconscious to our, to our conscious. Uh-huh. And so the idea of with you using sigils, uh, with invocations and with uh, a variety of techniques, all of which, you know, whenever I do a ritual, I, I use the whole day to do it. And um, is basically the purpose is to to find a way to open up your subconscious so that you can put something in there. Um, and what I have always felt has been the, the best thing to do is to have uh, some kind of personal transformation in terms of what you want to put into your subconscious. And um, more so than like, I, you know, want this girl to like me, or I want my book to sell millions of copies or whatever it may be in terms of external goals or things that we want to obtain. It's more importantly, I think it can be used and what I would, I'm going to be emphasizing more on is the personal transformation aspect, you know, and for example, and all of the, the substances, whether it was the hard drugs that I had or alcohol or cigarettes or whatever it was that I had, they had a hold on me. I used these rituals uh, to get over those addictions. Yeah. And, you know, um, you know, it, it's something that, I found it to be extremely effective. Um, and I think that, you know, when we're looking to make a change and essentially, you know, I feel like magic is about making an effect and a change on our existence, whether it be us or on our externals. Mm -hmm. um, it's something that, you know, for whatever reason, you know, um, the orgasm is a very powerful tool. And, um, and I feel like that is something that can be used and, and it's something that not everyone, you know, should feel like they have to use that, but it's something right. that I found to be very, uh, powerful. It makes sense. Cause it's the most like vulnerable state in this like somatic reality that you would be in. Right. Right. Using, you know, magic to help with addictions and stuff. I totally agree. And I I did the same. I mean, it was in conjunction with other things, but magic was definitely the big catalyst or like the easy focus, my own psychology and philosophy changing and helping getting rid 
of bad addictions. Right, right. Would you agree that there needs to be some sort of sacrifice? Not, not a literal sense when you perform a magical ritual. Is there a need to sacrifice something in order to get it? Um, I, I don't think so. Um, I think that that is something, I think, I think life kind of finds a way for you to experience some kind of sacrifice regardless, Right. you know? So I feel like that you're going to feel or experience loss no matter what. And I think that in those moments of loss, you know, that you find a way to gain something out of it. So I don't think there's any kind of need for people to go out of their way to have to sacrifice something about themselves or something else right to achieve like a it could be like a psychological gesture or something sure i mean i think you know quitting drugs sacrificing that easy escape that like apathy with drug use you know sure no it, it definitely is something of a sacrifice for sure a huge sacrifice and it's like when you lose when you stop doing a substance it's like you're ending a relationship and you are you're ending a, a relationship to something that was giving you um, happiness. And, uh, and maybe towards the end, as it often becomes, it's not really happiness anymore, but just wanting to feel normal. And um, But I, I would say that, you know, in addition to that, um, you know, what's really important um, in, in, in the practice of, the, uh, of magic, and, and I think for you see this throughout many different um, ideologies and practices as a relationship to like i guess you could call the other you know whether it be you know for uh, uh um a, a christian esotericist would be relationship to god or um crowley would be you know once holy guardian angel or you know uh or other deities you know i, I feel like uh and this is where me being an agnostic is plays a a, a funny role because for me, these entities, uh, it's not important uh, whether they exist or not. Right. I agree. I agree with you. That. Know, yeah. and, and, and I feel like uh, it's at times I feel like they do. And other, th- other times I feel like they're just it's just my imagination. And um, I would say that um, a certain amount of belief is important. I maybe not in belief, but I would say investment. I think emotion, you know, emotional investment in these deities is very important. Yeah, whether to be like some reverence, right? It. Yeah, you know, and and I think that uh, it, 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 what struck me years ago was like this feeling that I had that I um, was was living my own life, um, but somehow was living the life of something else, something that was. Uh, from a, some other place, right? And possessed. Yeah, certainly. You know, at times I felt like there was something going through me, or I was in contact with something else. And um, and because I never actually physically saw this thing, or you know, never had any direct, so-called direct relationship with it, it was always through indirect experiences. I I, I always sort of thought it was somehow from. And my best way of understanding as limited as I am is some kind of higher dimension. So it was something that to me was very important uh, in my own practice of the occult is developing a relationship with what I call a higher dimensional being. And um, it's something very similar to, you know, 
with the holy daemon sure. or or as the 12 steppers call their higher power or or crowley calls holy guardian angel is that it's the same concept well a very similar concept in that it's this it's this thing, this entity that you have. But it's separate, right? It's like separate from yourself. It's an outside force. It's somehow outside and somehow it's you it's somehow it's you at the same time too. It's like the supra self or like the the self that's higher than just your, you know, your consciousness. Right. Yeah, it, it yeah, it, it's basically I feel it's something that is is communicating to you and that you are have a bond with from the moment you're born until you die and quite possibly this thing continues after our death and and it finds another form to to express itself and and, and to grow in um and so it, i i do feel strongly in the idea of evolution uh i do feel like that there is sort of a progressive movement of humanity and that however much we seem like we're actually getting stupider um <laughs> we are we are actually in some weird way we're we're progressing um and i think that you know um it, it, again being agnostic about this I, I i i believe it and yet i'm open to doubting it as well sure um but uh i do feel like there's elements to what human beings have been doing that is going in a progressive evolutionary direction. And I feel like the, the whole purpose of this relationship that we have with this entity is, is to help us evolve. Maybe a good topic to end on, but through your work and discovering this or distilling this methodology or um, this, this work of service of, of aiding people uh, through their addictions and their quote-unquote demons you know their own possessions in a way right right through all of these what have you found is the biggest agitator or reason that a lot of these inmates like share uh well i what i i i really feel you know, to be something that, say, for example, these guys who who are are some of them, who are, some of these guys I've worked with who, who've killed people, a lot of them are, are gang members, uh, and I've done I've done horrible things. You know, um, sure. one of the things that I, I I as I continue to work with them and work with other people, and the thing that I see that they share with each other, not only just with each other, but with me, and also with the people who I helped in the posh Malibu treatment center who had millions of dollars. The thing that they share all of them is, um, is, is pain. And I feel like that that something is underlying a lot of what, why we do what we do. And uh, I, you know, what I hope to do with love chaos is to help people come to better terms with their pain. It's something that, you know, uh, Love Chaos doesn't make any promises to eliminate pain because my personal belief is you can't do that. But at least what one can do is come to better terms with your own pain so that you can live a, a, a more enriching life. And, um, you know, yeah. Maybe like a spiritual pain? Is there like a... Uh... Well, no, I, I'd say like because, you know, going again back to being... You know, uh, it, it could be some, it's, I understand, I think I know what you mean. Like, 
it, it's a pain that is it could be it could be it could be uh, without any kind of spirituality. Right. It could be it could be purely uh, biological. "Quote unquote God shaped hole." Sure, sure. You know, it could be that, or it could be the pain of say someone who's an atheist who doesn't have any spirituality, but had obviously experiences pain. I, I would say that the word I, I would prefer to use would be emotional. Yeah. Um, okay. There we go. That's yeah. Yeah. I would I would say that we all experience emotions and we all have feelings, and I think that that is what needs to be dealt with. And um, that, to me, is is of prime prime importance. Very cool. Well, Derek, I want to talk more. Um, kind of running low on time. However, uh, I did want to quickly talk about your application of Love Chaos with the uh, Chaos Riddle Pros, as well as your audiomancy, your music that you have connected to a tarot style reading you do. Um, I know those are very yeah. disparate, but at the same time, all connected because this is your folklore. Start first about uh, just your chaos riddle prose, what the rhythm of that and how that is your narrative structure for your fiction. Yeah, sure. So like most of the work that I've done has been in, in fiction. Most of it, I'm a writer of, 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 of uh, prose. And so I, I, I love to tell stories. And um what I noticed was a few a years ago, I was writing stories in, in a in a standard naturalistic prose style, and I felt like I wasn't going deep enough in the stories. So I decided that you know I wanted to find a way of expressing the stories by using language in ways that would help um, the reader and help me as a writer go a little deeper. Uh, and so that's how I created uh, Chaos Riddle Prose. And that is basically it, 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 it twists, it manipulates, it inverts the meaning of words, of languages, of language and of, of sentences so that as the reader, as you're reading these words and you're, you're reading a story, it, it, it upends um, your expectations of, of storytelling so that it, it basically makes people, uh, it, 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 the intent is to make people um, not stable on their own two feet while as a reader. Yeah. So it's kind of, it's, it's so akin and some of the closest I've kind of felt to my own inner monologue in a way, oh, cool. <laughs> you know, just, it's very frenetic and like it yeah. weaves back and forth, but it's very like ADD and right. <laughs> brosy cut up. Stuff, but it has a rhythm to it. it sure, like sure. A, a beat to it in a way too. It, it definitely is meant to be like music, you know. Uh, I and you know, you mentioned Burroughs, and I, I like Burroughs too. I like a lot of the writers that that came before him, like Joyce and Rimbaud, right, and uh, Lotrimont, uh, and uh, you know, and, and there was this one uh, French poet who I like very much, who was called Mallarmé, and he wrote uh, poetry uh, and used words as if it was like music. And so it has that rhythm that you're talking about. It has a certain beat to it and has a certain flow to it, a dynamic. Like it, words are almost dancing on the page, and they may not be um, grammatically connected to each other. But um, you know, I like that, and I know what, and I, yeah, I wanted to use it so that it would hopefully go uh, um, go places with the characters and with the story 
that you can't really go with naturalistic prose. Right. Uh, you know, and it, it, it kind of goes along with the similarity in, in, in the arts and, and painting mm-hmm. when you have a transition from photographic realism and painting to more at first impressionism, then to expressionism and into more abstraction. Because then what you find with painters are they're finding new ways to express themselves. And it's not something you normally see. You don't see it as often with the written word. You know, you see that with the other arts. You see it with, uh, especially with painting, Yeah. But with music as well. But uh, the painting in particular, it's just like uh, uh, finding a way to distort um, the image so that you may express something that, you just can't do with with outside appearances. Yeah, and it seems like it's meant to be read aloud because I've heard you yeah. <laughs> you read it and it it's right. great. It totally reminds me of the old beats in a way. Sure, sure, yeah. As it connects to your your music too, which is cool. Um, right. Which right. brings me to you know your tarot style and how you've constructed musical pieces for each of the major arcana. Is that correct? That's correct. Yeah, the, it, the, I did an album. Uh, I, have, I have eight albums. Most of them are connected to my uh, my books of fiction with me reading passages from the books uh, set to electronic music. Yeah, those are cool. But, and uh, thanks. And, and uh, um, But I did do a, an album that was uh, like a concept album where it was 22 tracks and each of the tracks is a, a musical interpretation of Crowley and uh, Lady Frida Harris's uh, Thoth tarot deck. So, and it's called the Major Arcana because each of the of the twenty-two uh, cards that are being uh, interpreted are part of the the twenty-two Major Arcana in the deck. And so, it was a, it was an, a, an attempt by me to use music, whether it be my my voice in weird ways and manipulate it, or electronic sounds and beats and rhythms to express something that I found in the cards. And um, it's, it's certainly one of the albums that I'm most proud of and I, I really enjoy. I really uh, like it too, because you also have an application for it. You have a way of yes. doing a tarot reading using this where you trigger right. the the songs or the, right, the musical right. pieces. Yes, what, what, I, what so I do tarot readings and um, you know I, I find the tarot is one of the, one of the uh, really helpful and key key ways to have a relationship with uh, with uh, your deity, whether it be your higher dimensional being or whatnot. So I really feel like the the tarot is great for that. But anyway, so with, with the tarot readings, uh, I do have my own way of my own spread that I do with two different paths. And but before I, I lay out that spread, I shuffle the major arcana and uh, and and pick one of them, and whichever card I pick. I play the track for that card while I'm shuffling the other cards to help kind of introduce the atmosphere of that card, uh, which will help to with the interpretation of, of the reading. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, I really enjoy the that confluence. I mean, that's kind of, you know, my big obsession is the application of magical means and, and art. And it's definitely really, it's really neat to see it actually be used instead of just a uh, reactionary art from right. finding meaning in a reading in a way, which is neat. Right. No, I definitely I think that introducing the arts in the in, in occult practices uh, can be very um, a really rewarding experience. Very cool. Well, Derek, thank you so much. I really appreciated this combo. 
Yeah, I, I have too. I wish we could talk for uh, another two hours. I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, no. my bladder will not allow. Yeah, no, it's okay. I, I've had a, a blast. It's, it's been a fantastic conversation. Well, and it's been great talking to you online leading up to this, and I hope we continue to do that. And I'd love to have yes. you on, um, if not before yes. the new edition of Love Chaos comes out. Sure, definitely. I, I look forward to continuing talking with you, whether on here or uh, elsewhere. That's part of the dialogues, right? Exactly. Ongoing. And real quick, did you have anything you'd like to mention? for the? Oh, uh, yeah. Sure. Just so that uh, people, you know, if you're interested in starting the Love Chaos Dialogues with me, just look for me on, on Facebook and reach out to me there or on Twitter uh, or also by email if you'd prefer. And that's dh.lovechaos at gmail.com. And again, you don't have to decide that you want to have love chaos as a, a guiding principle in your life. If you just are curious and have questions, you can do that. And, uh, and we can go from there. It was my absolute pleasure meeting, talking, and learning from Derek Hunter. Please check the show notes for his pertinent links, read his Chaos Riddle prose, follow Love Chaos, listen to his amazing tracks, and apply that tarot trick with his audiomancy. That is some cool shit. Anyways, I'm Keith Ross. If you'd like to support the show, please visit our Art Collective's website and Patreon at wethehallowed.org and patreon.com slash wethehallowed. That's it for me, folks. Next week, Mitch Horowitz. Haunt, haunt.